You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, promo code STAPLE20. This episode is powered by DenMeditation.com, with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks. This is Tal Rabinowitz, founder of Den Meditation. We have Light Watkins here today. He's a premier Vedic meditation teacher, and he's been in the meditation space since 1998. As he was a former Gap model, I've always been really curious how someone like him has found meditation, especially before it was mainstream. But I have to say, once I started talking to him, I understood really quickly that this is a guy who innately has had a sense of how to look at the world with positivity, trust, and compassion since the day he was born. It makes total sense that he found meditation as he was completely meant to be a teacher and spread this wisdom he naturally had. I love this perspective. I love it for the episode, and I really think it's a great one for you guys because it gives us all the ability to process how one can live life with intention every single day just because it's going to make your life better, how we don't have to wait for the disaster or the negative thing to throw us off life's course in order to start looking at things differently. He's all about following your heart relentlessly. Those are his words, not mine and how it's never going to let you down if you do so. Throughout this entire conversation, he remembers so many moments that he jumped and then the synchronicities of life completely cushioned any fall. This is going to inspire you to take a step out of fear. Whatever that is, you may be someone who's paralyzed by fear, or you may just have small doses of it that quietly keep you complacent. He is a perfect example of someone who just does. He blazes his path and he watches how it all falls into place the way it's supposed to. He trusts. He's a student of Tom Knowles, and now he's a master teacher himself, and he has a lot of wisdom to share. Don't forget, at the end of the episode, there's going to be a personal practice. He does a five-minute meditation that's a simple breathing practice. I really hope you enjoy the episode. We're here with Light Watkins. I'm so excited. Light and I met a couple years ago, and you came in and actually did a meditation from Inner City Youth, which was incredible. Mm -hmm. He's been teaching for over 12 years meditation, which... For a lot of you who may be new to the quote-unquote scene, that's like a long time ago in the world of kind of popular meditation. Obviously, meditation's been here forever, but as far as like really bringing it to the masses. He has a book out right now, Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying. And he has a book called The Inner Gym, which 
was from a few years ago. Yep. So you're just very prolific and all over the place. And I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, good. So, so you started, how did you get here? Let's start, like, let's back it up a little bit because he's a very handsome man. He's sitting in front of me. You used to model, correct? <laughs> I have dabbled, yes. You dabbled in modeling. You were a yoga teacher at one point and you're mm-hmm. from Alabama. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of these pieces don't seem like they add up to me. Mm-hmm. So how did it all start? You're born in Alabama? Uh, raised in Alabama. I was born in Chicago, but then my family was living in Alabama my whole life and um, went to college in D.C., graduated, started working in advertising. After about three months in this advertising job, I was in the creative department. Um, it's a wonderful job, but I just realized that I didn't want to be in a corporate environment. So I quit that and I said, you know what? I did a little amateur modeling in college, so let me see what that's about. But so when you went to college, did you go to college with any idea of what you might want to do or just... Went- advertising. I studied so that. Really yeah, I majored want- in advertising. But I didn't really know any... You know how it is when you're young. You, don't, know. you have this idea of what it's going to be like. I feel like you also back then, like now there's so many creative jobs, but back then I felt like you knew of four possible career choices. Yeah, and you had to go work for somebody. Yeah, and if or- you weren't going to med school, that was one that was out. So it's right. like, you're like, okay, there's four choices. Am I doing this, this, or this? And you picked one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so- advertising for you. yeah. And then you got the job. Was it a job you wanted? Like, were you excited about it? It was a great it? job. Yeah, it was like a dream job almost. But I, three months is not a long time. Three months is not a long time. <laughs> but it was enough to to inform me of what this was going to be about in the long term. You know, you look around the office, the people who've been there for the longest. And uh, I just didn't really see myself in them. I didn't see myself being at a company for 10 or 20 years and being in that industry. And May I ask how long ago this was? This was in 1995. I mean, the reason I'm asking that is because that's rare. I find for someone, I think people still struggle with this day, but there's so much more awareness today about what do you want to do? Don't settle, follow your passion. I think it's really rare for someone to get probably a pretty solid job where you knew your future to be taken care of, something you've been striving for. And then within three months, you could recognize this isn't going to work for me. Yeah, I was definitely one of the early adopters to the whole uh, follow your passion <laughs> right, <but> so <laughs> movement. Now, what did people around, like what were your parents thinking with the follow your passion movement? <laughs> well, you know, to their credit, they, they've they always been very supportive of anything. And, and at the time, I was kind of curating the truth. So it wasn't bewildering anyone and just making it seem as though these new opportunities were actually seeking me out. But in actuality, I was seeking them out. But what do you mean when you say you were curating the truth? Meaning I didn't call my mom and say, hey, I'm going to quit my job and and go and see if I can possibly maybe get into the fashion industry. I called her up and I said, hey, um, they want me to be a model. And and, uh, so, you know, I'm going to transition out of this thing and go into that thing. And it's going to allow me to do all of these other wonderful things and travel the world and blah, blah, blah. And these are things that hadn't really come into fruition at all. No right. one even knew me in the modeling industry. So but you it was didn't just want to disappoint idea. mom and dad. And you're like, well, yeah, you don't want your mom to worry <laughs> really course. ever. And um, since that's what mothers do, then, uh, you know, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong, but that's what I did when I was 22. I just told them that. And then it happened. That was what was happening. Yeah. And then I I, I decided I was going to go to Paris and just, you know, go to the epicenter of, of the modeling industry. So you literally got on, but did you speak French? Nothing. No, I just bought a one-way ticket with my last little money and um, had a, I got rid of all my stuff. It was the first time in my life I sold all my stuff. And I just had a duffel bag 
I had one of those sailor's duffel bags with all my stuff in it. And Loving the ones ticket. you throw over your shoulder. Yeah, and this is before the internet. So you couldn't like research, no, you know, where like- are you going to stay? And I had a book called Paris on the Budget. And, uh, was it like a Rick Steves? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was kind of like a list of hostels and restaurants you could go to that are really cheap. And I literally landed there with no agenda. I didn't even know where I was going to go when I got off the plane. And, um, and everything just kind of worked out as they, as they do when you take those kinds of leaps of faith. I love this conversation, actually, because, you know, I get to speak to so many interesting people and I love it, you included. And, you know, a lot of people, there's like two sides you can come to, like where you get to this period of your life. You can come to the, fuck, I really struggled. I went through shit. I hit rock bottom and I found this and it's changed my life. And now I'm, I realize this is my purpose and I'm teaching it, which are incredible stories as well. And then there's the stories of, there's always been something inside me and I've just been, I use the word lucky, like lucky enough to be able to tap into it Mm -hmm. and not have to go through the struggles in order to, not that you haven't had struggles. That's an unfair statement, but you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I find, I really kind of want to chat about this because it is really interesting that, you know, obviously forward, what, 10 years later, maybe less, that's when you start kind of dabbling in the world of meditation and yoga Mm -hmm. and we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. And now you are one of the top teachers out there and this is what you live, breathe and do every day. Mm But clearly, a lot of what you do now was already living inside you back then. That's right. Yes. And, I, and I, I use the same sort of language. I just say, for whatever good fortune, I've been able to follow my heart, so to speak, um, from a very early age. And, and I have to credit, again, my parents, my upbringing. They've been always supportive. They've never really uh, imposed any sort of, of, of agenda onto any of my, myself or my brothers. And so I've I don't even know what that feels like for someone to say, this is what you have to do. Uh, instead, they would just say, just do whatever makes you happy. And Did they, um, were they of the like philosophy, like you can do anything? Uh, yeah, they were more of the philosophy of whatever you do, just make sure you work hard at it. And do it well. And yeah, and because the cream will rise to the top, that's what they would say. So I knew, I was, I was, I loved working. I started working when I was 13. I went down to a, a, a local barber shop and and uh, asked the owner if, if I could start sweeping up hair. Yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, just I don't know what and compelled me to to go there and do that. I didn't really need the money. Um, I just wanted to be useful. I and, loved working too. Yeah, I, I know. And I always it. said I liked having a purpose. Like even I always before felt- that, I was uh, I was a, one of those safety. Uh, what, what do you call those oh, things? Oh, like captains, the, the, like the a safety flag, captain the safety, on the street? Yeah, to help people cross the street. <laughs> I so used to do that at my at school. At eight years old, I would get up and put on my little uniform before everybody else got up and just kind of make my little cereal and then go and have to be there at like 6.30 in the morning or something like that. I just loved it. I loved Were I your loved siblings the, the like ritual. that too? Or no, this is definitely no, specific no. to you? No, I was the only one who was interested in doing stuff like that. I loved it too. I remember my mom's office and I was little. I used to like answer the phones for them and they right. would love it. Like all the secretaries at the time that were like, Oh, thank God they could take a break. And I would be really serious about it. I'd be like, yeah. hello, blah, blah, blah's office. What can I do? And I would take the notes and like, just the idea. I loved feeling like, I, I don't know. I loved having a job. It was yeah. the same thing. I worked the school supply cart all through elementary school and, you know, worked on the yearbook staff and all of those. So I, I guess when you look back and you see that, yeah, there's definitely a pattern there of. And also you have a work ethic, which I would think for your mom, going back to her worrying, mm-hmm. If you know your child has a work ethic, if they're taking a weird left turn and doing something that might feel less safe, it's like it might must make her feel better now, but he has a work ethic. So mm-hmm. like if he's going to do this, he's going to do it like yeah. he's going to do it right or he's going to at least take it as far as it can go. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Because I could yeah. see for some parents, if your child has no work ethic and they're like, well, now I'm going to go here. You might be like, ah, yeah. are they going to be able to feed themselves? But it was still scary, you know, like going to Paris and all that and taking, quitting my job. It was still definitely scary, but I felt like I was able to tap into more courage than the fear that was there at the same time. And, uh, and that you, was one of the first experiences of, okay, well, that fear is there. It didn't go anywhere, but I was still able to kind of push myself off the cliff and watch the net appear. And once you do it once or twice, then it becomes almost addictive. Yeah. So is that the, that's the first moment you actually remember like feeling that and kind of overcoming it? Yeah. Quitting your, quitting my job. I mean, that's, you know, every, every growing up in Alabama, that's your, your, your whole your whole childhood is all around, you know, getting a job at some point in your life. That's what everyone talks about. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Go get a job, have maybe a family, get married, yeah, yeah, take care of your buy kids, buy a house one day. So once you start challenging some of these assumptions, it just opens up a whole well of possibilities. And uh, and then I've been kind of on that off the beaten path since since those days. Do you feel like that's kind of your thing now? You challenge every assumption? Yeah. Like is there anything is is there anything that you don't actually question when it first comes in front of you? Um no, I'm always asking questions. I'm always asking questions. I mean I've gotten I'm 45 now, so I've gotten to the point where I don't have to be so curious about everything anymore because i've seen you know i've been you, once you go around the block a few times you kind of see you kind of see what works for you and i guess they call that being set in your ways but i, I, like, <laughs> I like to be refer to it more as just understanding your own best practices and um and but you know there's always a little wiggle room in there because even i know we'll talk about this later but even when i got into meditation i never envisioned becoming a meditation teacher you know i was very happy doing what i was doing before that and uh, and then this other thing came into my uh, awareness, and and I just knew instantly this is what I'm supposed to do. So within the structure of my life, I always keep a space for that, for for inspiration to kind of guide me in a different direction. I mean, it's interesting, is when you said like you joked, but it's true. People say that means you're stuck in your ways, and you're like, no, it's me just kind of knowing myself and what works for me and what doesn't. I was just having this conversation the other day with someone that it is fascinating how in the world of like self-reflection or wellness or just trying to be better, you you can, like anything in life, take these lessons and really twist them to work to your benefit if you're not actually doing the proper work. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for instance, what you're saying, being stuck in your ways for someone who actually really is stuck in their ways and is kind of afraid of life and doesn't want to try new things or be present. So mm -hmm. it's easier to like set up a bunch of boundaries and kind of right. like lock themselves in, that would be like the wrong approach. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, I know what I like. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah, funny yeah. how you yeah. can use these things to either side, depending on how you want to work it, if yeah. you're not actually able to be self-reflective and aware. Yeah. I love that distinction. Stuck in your ways because you're afraid of change versus knowing yourself and being excited about the things that, that excite you. Yeah, but or also knowing your open, limitations, but knowing to better possibilities. Absolutely, and also knowing sometimes what you're good at and what you're not good at, and that's mm -hmm. not a horrible thing, but it just helps you navigate the world a lot better. Yeah. Or you come up with ways to help yourself because you know you really suck at that. So like right. you come up with your own ways to like handle life in that version or whatever it is. Yeah. Like I know where I'm. Like I'm like, oh god, don't give that to me. Like I'll lose it or don't do that. Like I know those are mild versions, but I'm pretty aware of not good at that. Like you do not want me number one on your team over there for that. Like it's just honest. And you also learn, I think over 
over the years, you learn that you can't really talk to everybody about these things. If you are someone who's done enough work on yourself to really know yourself and to know, and when I say know yourself, I'm not just talking about our, you know, your individual self, but also that part of you that's connected to everyone else. It, it kind of gives you a unique perspective that if you share it with other people, they just, a lot of times they just don't get it. And, um, because they haven't really done that kind of that same level of work. And it's kind of like, you know, an athlete, I guess, trying to explain their training regimen to someone who's never really worked out. I mean, it's not like they can't, they can understand it intellectually, but there's still a lot of other information in there that only another real athlete can, can really appreciate. That's a much better way of saying it because I've used almost the same metaphor, <laughs> but with the negative spin on it. And I'm always like, this is not what I'm trying to say. It's coming off wrong because my version was like, you know how you always say when you're an athlete, because I used to be a huge tomboy and an athlete, mm -hmm. you're only as good as the worst player on the team yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I hate saying it because I'm like, no, that makes it seem like you have to be better or worse. And that's not the point. No one's better. No one's worse. You're just you're, saying we're on a team. We're teammates. Right. But I'm like, I try and explain that meaning like there's only certain like conversation you can you you can't expect someone who's not on a team on that team to be able to be where you're at with certain yeah. conversations, like you were saying, but you just said it. I like your idea of like the training because I've been really struggling with my version and I know it doesn't go over very well. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but you, the idea is very similar yeah, where it's yeah. like, yeah. And I was just having this conversation with someone last night about, especially as you get older, I wonder if you felt this, if you felt it was more age or your practice mm -hmm. of you know, really realizing that there's certain people in your life you can do certain things with. Like, you probably have those few core friends that are kind of encompass almost everything. And those are the special ones that just never leave your side or mm -hmm. your heart, I should yeah. say. Um, and then there's the ones that are like, oh, these are the ones, these are my fun ones. Or this is right. the person I really want to sit down and have like a deep ass conversation with. Or, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah, this is the one I talk to relationships about. This is the one I play sports with. This is the one I go and hang out with. Yeah. Exactly. Do you feel like your relationships changed when you started? And I do still want to go back and talk about how you really got into meditation. Mm -hmm. But when you started really practicing and then especially when you became a teacher, mm -hmm. do you feel like it changed your relationships or your human interactions? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think you just become more perceptive um, and discerning and how who you spend time with. So the people that I choose to spend time with, I think it's still kind of the same, but I just don't spend time with a lot of, as many people as I used to spend time with. But I think that happens when you get older anyway. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Is it when older When you're 25, you have like a thousand friends. Oh God, you're, when you're 45, pack. you have like five friends. I know. And it's like hard to keep up with them. <laughs> it's hard to keep up with them. I know. Yeah. What happens? Yeah. So when you, like, are you friends with any of your friends from childhood, from Alabama? Not close. No. But you keep in touch. Uh, You know. Christmas or Facebook or that kind oh, of thing. Oh, God bless Facebook. Yeah. Um, so here you are. You go to France. You know nobody. Mm -hmm. You don't speak a language. What do you do? What's your first thing? My first move was to, well, first of all, just to kind of un get set up the, the, set the scene for you. Um, on my way to France, I had to transfer through Newark Airport. <laughs> That's flying, my neck of the woods. <laughs> yeah, I was flying Continental Airlines, and that was their hub. And now they've merged with United. United. Anyway, I got to the gate for the flight going from Newark to Paris, and it was oversold. And they were asking people, "Do you want to? Does anyone want to give up their their seat?" Right. So of course, I didn't have anybody expecting me. You know, contrary to what I told my mother, 
So I thought, let me give up my seat and I'll get a little voucher. So they gave me a voucher for, I think, uh, $600 or something like that. So I thought, fantastic. Now I have a ticket to go back home if I ever need one. That's great. Because I literally did not have money. It's amazing. You were taken care of right from the start. Yeah. And they put me in a hotel because there was only one flight a day. Next night, I show up back at the gate. Same song, second verse. I give up my seat again. No. Now I have Now you're two making vouchers. a business out of this. Now I'm thinking, <laughs> forget the modeling thing. I'll just keep coming back here. Sell the tickets. Yeah, and just keep uh, giving up my seat. And so went back to the hotel, and then uh, there were two other people who were on the flight that also gave up their seats two nights in a row. So then we all ended up having dinner that night. So I, I connected with these people who lived in Paris. And they all said, you know, if you... So they lived there. They were from They Paris. lived there, yeah. And they You're said, you, of course, call me. Here's my number, blah, blah, blah. So I thought, okay, that's cool. Now I have some people that I know there. And then the third night came back, same thing. Um, do you want to give up your seat? So I volunteered again, except this night, we all ended up getting on the flight. That's and crazy. Were they going to volunteer too again? They, yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you yeah, like we this all, weird we little group yeah, that yeah, just yeah, had yeah. nowhere to go? <laughs> yeah, we have nowhere to go. <laughs> so, so, so having... Having said that, I show up in Paris, right? And I have this, I have some pictures um, that I had taken in Chicago where the advertising agency uh, was. And I went to the, uh, the, the, the modeling agency, one of the bigger modeling agencies in Paris, probably the biggest one at the time. It was called PH1. And I didn't really know how this whole thing works, right? You just go in, they, the receptionist asked me for the pictures. I gave her my pictures. She literally disappeared, went to the back, came out like 30 seconds later and said, here, thank you very much. We've got someone that looks just like you. Oh. And um, so I was like, okay, that's, that's cool. I'll just go to the next <laughs> place, right? And just keep doing that. And I'm sitting down and putting on my, my shoes or no, putting my stuff back in the bag. And this guy, this, this, this big burly black guy was standing over in a corner talking to these two French models in fluent French. And he's looking at me and I, as I'm putting my stuff away. And then he comes over to me and he says, aren't you from Chicago in perfect English? And I said, yeah, I am. And he, apparently he saw one of my pictures in one of the agencies in Chicago and he recognized me from the picture. Because oh he was from Chicago. Wow, you were, you really and he said are aligned. to me. He said he said, "What do you what what happened here? Did they end up working with you?" And I said, "No, they 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 basically rejected me." And he said, "Okay, I want you to follow me." And we're in this old building in the middle of Paris, right on the third floor or whatever. We walk out of the door on the third floor. We walk down the hallway to the next door, and there's another agency. It's a woman's agency. And he wants me to meet the booker in the woman's agency because maybe the booker from there will hear about men's castings and will send me around. So we walk in the door and then I see a really good friend of mine from one of my college amateur fashion shows. She's okay. standing in there. She turns around. She goes, oh my God, Wait, what are you doing so crazy. here? Right. Now, meanwhile, I've only been in Paris for like two hours. After How having, about this is the first day? This is literally two hours after I got off the flight. Oh my goodness. I didn't even check into a place I'm to hanging stay. out with you from now on, clearly. Right. <laughs> so she was there in the agency 
with a friend of hers whose mother had just left town for six months and had a flat Cue right, apartment. I was right in the, the Sacre Coeur in the Montmartre district, which is like the best area Amazing. in Paris. And he says, you could stay at my mom's flat. And that booker at that agency said, I'll send you out on castings. And I ended up hanging out with their little group of friends for the next like six months. And, and remember, I gave up my seat twice. So it's like everything was kind of coming together. This guy, you got what are the exactly chances when you were supposed of to this get in. guy, exactly, standing in the agency. And my friend was just down the hall. I had no idea. I would, have no, I would not have known that. So those kinds of things, when they, when they started happening, I started, to, I started to realize, holy crap, I'm, I'm always where I need to be as long as I'm following my heart, right? And luckily, again, that happened to me when I was in my early 20s. So I've been repeating that whole thing over and over, and and uh, and you know, again, when you understand that impermanence is the nature of life, things are always changing. I think what I try to teach my students and tell people is, you want to try to get ahead of it instead of waiting for the change to be enforced upon you, because well, it's never pretty, which is super painful <laughs> and dark and scary, right? When you start feeling the inklings in your heart. That's where you want to start to get in front of it. And then you start having these wonderful moments of synchronicity and coincidence and serendipity. And it gives you a wonderful story to tell people on a podcast, you know, 20 years later. That's an amazing story. Do you feel like it's hard for you to teach your students a little bit about following the heart because you were a natural, like you were, again, lucky in the sense that you were pretty natural at it. Yeah. it. Came to you. I accept that that I was had it was a natural Cle- inclination for me for which is great, reason. by the way. Yeah. I mean that's amazing. And but I've also seen though, like through practices like meditation, people can really clarify that internal perceptual acuity. And I think once you get it, once you get it to a point where it's loud enough, then you can't ignore it anymore. And that's what I tell people: like, don't worry about you know trying to hear something that you can barely hear. Just just sit and and clarify it and then it'll it'll find you. I love that because I feel like that question comes up a lot, which is how do you know? How do you know to re- like feel your instinct? How do you know to follow it? How do you know to hear it? How do you hear your inner voice? What does it actually sound like? And I think that's a nice, and I mean, it probably goes back to your book a little bit of how to like, like chill out within it. Like don't yeah. work so hard. It's like, it will come, keep doing it. And the voice will get louder instead of trying to like strain your ear to hear it. Right. And we also, I think one of the big mistakes we make is we think that, you know, there is such a thing as a being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, uh, and I think the reality is that every moment is, is helping to navigate us to whatever the next moment is. And there's as rich, there's rich information in what looks like a bad situation as much as there is in a, what looks like a good situation. So why, I mean, it's great to everyone loves nice, you know, abundant situations, but there's, there's still a lot to learn in in the bad stuff. So just to, to don't discount it as a throwaway moment or some obstacle that you have to overcome to get to some place that's going to make you happier, right? Just see what you can learn about yourself in that moment. And that'll help you in the next moment. How do you then, I know you said somewhere once about, you know, people always say happiness is a choice. Happiness is a choice. And Mm -hmm. you were actually saying, I mean, yeah, it's a choice, but it also is a practice. Like, yes. and it really is cultivating, which I'd love for you to talk about more. But off of what you just said, I find a lot of people who do get stuck, it's like, oh, I'm in the wrong place in the wrong time all the time. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they can't look at any of those things as a learning moment. It's always just negative. It's always like a slap in the face from the universe or from whoever. Mm-hmm. 
how do you work with people like that to really get them to be able to be a comfortable in those moments, be able to see any positive within it and therefore start cultivating this happiness? Because I find people like that are very angry at people who are happy because they feel like it's lucky. You know what I mean? They don't, you know, they might just look at me like, well, you're lucky and I haven't been so lucky. Yeah. I think you're right. I think what needs to happen is we need to redefine the, the mechanics of happiness, you know, because I think a lot of people assume that happiness is this kind of choice based experience. It should be as easy as, you know, choosing to wear a blue shirt over a yellow shirt. And I like to paint happiness as an exercise. This is actually the basis of my first book, The Inner Gym, 30-Day Workout for Strengthening Happiness. And I related happiness to pull-ups, you know? Like, I love that you do that. <laughs> everybody, of course, understands what a pull-up is and how to do one. But if you've never actually trained, you know, and you jump up and, and grab a hold of a bar, it's going to be very hard to pull yourself up, right? And, uh, and so what you're going to do is you're going to think, well, doing pull-ups is hard, but to the person who has trained and who's been practicing the pull-ups over and over and over, it's not hard to do, you know, a hundred pull-ups. And I say that when life presents different circumstances and we find ourselves buckling under those circumstances, it's, it's kind of like, you know, a trainer saying, okay, you have to do a hundred pull-ups today. You know, that's what a breakup is like. It's like the equivalent oh, yeah. of having to do it. It's like, it's impossible. I can't find that happiness with that circumstance, right? But if you train your inner muscles, your inner emotional and spiritual muscles, it's not that you're going to look forward to being broken up with. It just means that you'll be able to endure the situation. And then once the situation comes and goes, you're going to be able, you're going to have an easier time moving, moving on. Instead of resenting people and holding on, harboring these kind of negative feelings. So, uh, yeah, I would say, you know, just don't try to avoid the negative feelings. Just strengthen your inner muscles so that you can move beyond them when the time is appropriate. Hey guys, we wanted to announce our next Dent Talks Live. So again, if you're liking these episodes and you want to actually see it in person and then you get a chance to have Q&A and talk to people, our next one is December 8th. It's going to be a panel. We have four incredible guests. It's called How to Be Your Own Guru because I feel like we get a lot of that. How can I figure out what's right for me and all this noise? And so we're going to talk to all of these people who come at it from religion, travel, career shifts, spirituality, how they decided like what works for them, what their spiritual path should be in a world full of so much noise. So some of the panelists are going to be Muhammad al-Samawi. He was raised in Yemen to a devout Muslim family. He started questioning his religious beliefs early, which led to death threats. He actually fled hoping to save his family, but he fled right into the heart of the civil war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Honestly, through just some faith and through Facebook, who knew? He put some flyers out there and some people from different countries actually saved him. So he was always challenging spirituality from a young age and religion. We have Chandresh Bardwatch, who is one of our teachers. He was on the podcast himself. He is incredible. He wrote an entire book about this, Break the Norms. He comes from a whole spiritual lineage of gurus, and he actually chose to take a whole different path until he ended up back to where he needed to be, but he did it the way he needed to do it, even though people might have disapproved. We have Jordan Taylor Wright coming on as well. He's a young creative director and filmmaker. He has worked with the best of them, literally with J-Lo and Usher, Justin Bieber, 
but he has chosen to walk this path differently. It's so easy to succumb to the world of entertainment and money and drugs and partying. And he is just such a steady path of spirituality and who he is. And he always has been that way. So he has some really interesting things to share. And then rounding it out is Cassandra Bodzak. She is a nutritionist and author. Her book just came out. She's incredible. It's all about eating with intention and how you have to figure out the nutrition and what is right for you. Once again, in a world with so many people telling you, you have to eat this or eat that, she is all about figuring out what works for your body. So again, this is an incredible panel. It's going to be live. There's going to be a book signing afterwards. They each have a book. So please come. And again, a chance to do a Q&A, have personal practices with them. And to hear how all of them, no matter what they were told and disapprovals and different perspectives, how they all figured out what works for them and to give you guys tips on how to figure out how to be your own guru. So it's interesting. The choice part comes with choosing to do the exercise. Yes. So it's like I'm choosing to work out and get stronger, even though I'm really bad at it and it hurts and my arms are ready to break. Right. I'm choosing to do it so that one day I look like that guy who's like, like at the gym. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's and, so and, and true. And exercises are things, simple things, things that our mothers all taught us. You know, stillness, be still, sit still. <laughs> Gratitude, be thankful, you know. Um, random acts of kindness, be generous, share. You know, all these little things. And it, I'm doing that patient. right now with my child. Right, slow down. Like that's what the basis of the inner gym is all about. And I those love are, that. those are the things that actually cultivate inner happiness. And it's not like my opinion. This is all scientifically proven. I, I mean, I'm totally on board because I feel like I'm like you. I was very fortunate and I feel like indirectly or for whatever reason, I had parents who instilled a lot of this way of processing life in my head. So same thing. Like I could, I mean, breakups sucked, but I could kind of always, I could laugh still through them. I could still enjoy my friends and I could still find ways to plow through because I could still see the rest of the world around it, even though I was terribly sad. Each and every time. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> but it's funny with my daughter, who's just turning three, I'm very big on, we do gratitude every night. I'm just like, okay, time to, and she says it too. If I forget, she's like, mommy, we have to do what I'm thankful for. And it's hilarious because it's a three-year-old and she doesn't quite get the bigger concept, which I'm fine with. Cause I'm like, it's more exercising her to start even doing it and right. making it part of her life. So it's really cute. She just kind of looks and around. It's probably more helpful for you. Being reminded to be in a space of gratitude. Absolutely. And it's, and also she gets to hear like the loving things towards her, which I think is nice, but it's so funny because she just basically looks around the room and names things. Mm-hmm. So she, and she does, she likes to do it really quickly. So she's like, I'm thankful for the light in the bed and my toys and my this and my this. And every once in a while she'll say something sweet like, and you, but, or pizza. That's my favorite. I'm thankful for pizza. And, and I'm like, those are all great things. Like, and then I'll usually, when she says, what are you thankful for? A lot of times I'll name things for her. I'll be like, I'm so thankful you had such a great day today with this friend. And I'm so thankful that, you know, just so she can start without forcing it down. It's like, just be around it and hear it because one day, hopefully you're, you're exercising and the muscles will just know to do that. And I think she's very wise because, you know, the things that she names are oftentimes the things that we overlook. I I think that's so true. Right. You know, we like wait for the big stuff. We're going to wait for Thanksgiving to be grateful or I'm grateful for this friendship or whatever but what about the little stuff what Pizza. about being grateful for the parking ticket yeah reminding you to be more present with you know where you are and and what your responsibilities are what about being grateful for paying your taxes and being grateful for you know giving away some clothes some and goodwill or whatever you know it's like i love that book um the life-changing magic of tidying up. Have you? Oh yeah, yeah, read no, this book? yeah, it's amazing. She always talks about your clothes should be happy, and when you give away something, you, 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 you acknowledge what 
how much how much it brought to, into your life before you give it away. Well, it's funny because Nicole's you, sitting with us and she helped me clean out my garage. And I was like, oh, poor Nicole. This is like, she has to deal with like every story. I'm like, oh, and this was from the time that, yeah, <laughs> but we yeah, were doing it because yeah. it is nice. It's like, I mean, I love this stuff at one point and it's like, it just belongs somewhere else. It's not for me anymore. It's for somebody else. Right. It's for something else, whatever it was used for. Yeah. So when you embody that, you know, every moment can be special. Every, every single, you sitting in the dentist's office, sitting in traffic, going to the post office, all those things that we don't like can be an absolutely wonderful opportunity. Standing in a long line at the grocery store gives us an opportunity to maybe, you know, check in with people who are standing around us and just have a little conversation and connect and, you know, so. Or have time to yourself even, just you to like not to have yourself. to rush around. Yeah. Because that happens a lot. People are like, I'm so sorry because they're late. And almost always I'm like, no worries. It was delightful. Like right. for me to be able to sit somewhere and actually like just sit, it's it's wonderful. I'm like, thanks. Yeah. I'm always like, thanks for the gift. No worries. And every time I get to a cashier, especially at a, you know one of these places where they see a lot of people, I always, when I remember, I use that as an opportunity to just say something that's going to kind of break the, the status quo for them, you know, and maybe ask them um, what the highlight of their day was today or just something like that. Because, you know, everyone there is just it's a transaction, 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 and it becomes automated. After what do you notice while. when you do that? Uh, people are always, people have interesting things to share. You know, um, and everyone likes, every, I think everyone likes being, uh, having a special experience with someone, you know? So it's just, and it's, for me, it's just a habit, you know, cause it's like, why wait until you see a, a attractive person to go up and say something special? Why not say something special to everyone? You know, if you pass by someone and, um, and you never know what kind of effect that's going to have on their day. Do you feel like you try and do break your own status quo? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like what yeah. are examples of that for you? Um, you know, I I uh I um I, my my routine is kind of to not have a routine. So I like to go like for instance, I just rejoined uh, Equinox gym. <laughs> we were talking about gyms before the we other day. Yeah. And um that you know, the great thing about Equinox in Los Angeles is it's kind of like Starbucks. They have them all over the place. Yeah. So it's fun to kind of like look at the schedule and like just pick a location and see what's happening at that location and, and just go there on that day. And, and I, we haven't really spoken about this either, but I'm, I don't have a home right now. Well, I was just, it's funny. I was just about to say. So this. every day is kind of like a little mini adventure, you know, where I can, I'm staying at one friend's place over in West Hollywood and then I have another friend's place that I'm staying in Santa Monica, but then I'm also seeing a person in Santa Monica as well and staying at her place a little bit. So and then, you know, so he recently, you got rid of your place in May, you were saying, yeah, I and was that, in Santa Monica for four or five, well, I've been in the West side of LA for about nine years and I just got rid of that. And so what inspired that for you? And again, I love it because it's clearly now that I know you better and we all do, this is part of you, which I yeah. love. You've always been one to be like, I feel something needs to change. So what right. here did you all of a sudden feel it was, like, it was just that I don't want a home. I just felt, I walked in my house one day and just felt like it wasn't my home anymore. And what was interesting was that- But you it, didn't have the desire to get another home. No. That's no. what's interesting. And and also I felt like that about Los Angeles. Um, but I had a beautiful place. It was in a great area. Um, checked all the boxes, you know, undervalued, under market uh, rent and all of those things, but it didn't matter. And I've done that in my life three or four times at this point where I, you know, I don't hold on to places. If I'm going to be transitioning out, I like to just completely wipe the slate clean. But this time was a little bit different because I challenged myself 
to get rid of everything that well, did not fit into a carry-on bag. Well, oh, well, that's crazy. But, that, <laughs> but I was going to say, you must have gotten rid of a lot of stuff because you didn't move into anywhere. But I, I had a carry-on. I had a two-bedroom apartment. I had a two-bedroom apartment. So I found the biggest carry-on bag that would fit in the overhead bin. Now, did you start buying really light clothing and smaller shoes to just like have more room? You're like, how um, can I have more room in this carry-on? A little bit, yeah, a little bit. I started to shop with that in mind. Because like as a woman, one pair of boots and that carry-on and you're screwed. I have literally one pair of shoes right now. I'm the same way. It's flip-flops. And, uh, they fit everywhere. <laughs> and some flip-flops. I have a pair of shoes. Actually, no, sorry. I have some trainers. And then I have some white Jack Purcells. I mean, luckily, we live in an age now where people just wear white tennis shoes all the time. Yeah. And that's all you really need. You don't need, like, appropriate for dinner and appropriate right. for that. Yeah. So you literally, you have a carry-on that's acceptable carry on. on all airlines. All airlines. So airlines. we're not talking, like, kind of a bigger one that's only on international flights. No, no, no. All airlines. Yeah. Because I didn't want to have to take a chance with checking my bags and then them losing everything. And then I have to, like, go and buy a bunch of crap to until they find my bag and all of that. Plus... It just takes time having to wait around for the bag. And, I hate it. And yeah. I travel so much that I just like to be able to go right in and get right out. And I have the global entry thing so I, I can do a TSA pretty much every time. And so it's just super easy to travel that way. And how do you feel? I feel amazing. I feel light. <laughs> no light. Attention. I know your name, which I also want to talk about. Um, <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's. Great. And you said you're seeing someone in Santa Monica. Yeah. I, I, as I was leaving Los Angeles, I met someone. Of course. Of course. And uh, it's been, so it's still relatively new, four or five months, but we're still very much um, enjoying each other's company. But now you're like a nomad. And so it's it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So now to get to Keith's continue your story, don't forget, I did not forget people, um, <laughs> of how you got to the meditation. It's you not as Quentin Tarantino would back. I know. Look beginning. at me. I'm going to do it. We're going to whip around. Um, it's not as surprising to me though. Like I think in the beginning I was like, how do these dots connect? Mm -hmm. And now, I mean, I still want to hear how we get from dot to dot, but mm -hmm. it's not as surprising because clearly there was something in you that just kind of resonated with the universe since you were a little kid. Yeah. And so now it doesn't shock me that through this path, you slowly got more and more attracted to this world, knowing how life was working for you. Um, so, but talk about it. So, so I'll give you the cliff notes version. So basically when I was in Paris, I ended up eventually getting with an agency, a really high quality agency. They introduced me to a bunch of other agencies. The way the modeling game works is you have an agency in every market, every major market. So in LA, New York, Paris, Milan, et cetera. So I got an agency in New York through my Paris agency. So they brought me over to New York. I stayed in New York. I was modeling for five or six years. You know, it was, I wasn't a supermodel ever, but I was, I started off having to get a little part-time job waiting tables, which was great, but it allowed me a lot of flexibility to explore vegetarianism and all these other wonderful things that I was starting to discover, um, around health and wellness before there was a wellness scene. And so I was vegan. I became a vegan for, and I was vegan for about 12 years during that, during that stage. And then eventually, I think through the spiritual stuff, the yoga that I started getting into, I started to realize, you know what, modeling was great. It served a wonderful purpose. It gave me an opportunity to travel and meet a bunch of cool people. But I don't feel like I'm really tapping into my life purpose, right? And uh, now I'm about 28, 29. I'm going through my Saturn return, <laughs> which is that time where we start to really get clear about what we're here to do. And I decided that I was going to uproot and move to Los Angeles and uh, and see what happens in Los Angeles and, and retire myself from modeling. And, you know, it's very tempting to stay in an industry like modeling because you get one job, you can make three, $4,000 after, you know, for five hours of work. 
and that can pay all of your bills. And at the time, I have an apartment paying $800 a month. And, um, you know, my expenses weren't that much. So you could very well use it as a crutch. But I decided I didn't want to use it as a crutch. I knew that if I stayed in it, that I would always in the back of my mind think, you know what, I don't really have to go out and really push myself to do these other things that I want to do if I can always rely on that happening and waiting on the phone call to see if I won the beauty contest or not that day. So I got out of the modeling and it wasn't like I was like getting all these jobs and turning them down. I, my modeling career actually was coincidentally starting to go on the decline. So it was easier to make that choice, moved to Los Angeles and started to um, explore the, med- the yoga scene. Right now, at the time, I'd been trying to meditate. I wasn't really successful at it. I felt like you know my mind was really busy. I, all the excuses that people use today, and uh, but I wanted to become a yoga teacher. So the first yoga class I went to in Los Angeles was at Crunch Gym, which we <laughs> talked about, and um, they didn't ever list the last names. They would just list the first names of the people. So I found I saw this guy named Will. And no last name. And I just, he was teaching at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday morning or something. So I thought, okay, let me go to this class. Went to Will's class. Turns out, Will was my favorite yoga teacher in New York. Wow. He had just relocated. Once again, you go somewhere Los new and Angeles. everything just works itself <laughs> right. out. What was interesting is I only went to his class one time about three years before I moved to Los Angeles. But you loved him. My girlfriend at the time dragged me to his class, but I never went back because it was on the Upper East Side and I was on the West Side and and it was at five o'clock. It just wasn't, yeah, not wasn't feasible. Yeah, exactly. So, But I never forgot it. And so now I'm in his class in Los Angeles and I'm like, oh my God, you're that guy whose class I really loved. And he remembered me because he had a crush on my girlfriend Ah. And when she brought me to the class, he was exactly (laughs) the wind was was deflated out of his sail. So we had both just broken up with our girlfriends. So you're like, she's available now. (laughs) Well, we just connected. We connected over that. We started talking about spirituality, and he became my meditation friend. Now, this is 2002. As you said at the beginning of this, nobody was really meditating at the time except for my friend, Will. He was, in my life, he was the meditation guy. And he would always ask me the dreaded question, do you want to meditate? And it was dreaded because, again, I didn't feel like I was very good at it, but I would do it anyway, which was basically me sitting there waiting for him to finish. (laughs) And then about four months after that, he said, hey, my meditation teacher's coming to town. You should come and meet him. And this completely blew my mind because I didn't even realize people had meditation teachers. I didn't know what that meant. Was it like a Mr. Miyagi type of situation? (laughs) Like, who's this person? And so I went to his living room um, one day, one night in February 2003. And if you would have stopped me before I walked in and said, hey, would you do anything in your life having to do with meditation? There would have been a 100% chance that it would have would not be a part of my life professionally. But it's the moment I laid eyes on the teacher. Um, it was the opposite of the advertising agency. When I looked around the advertising agency, the people who'd been there the longest, I didn't see anybody who felt who seemed very happy. 
when I looked at my meditation teacher, he was the happiest person I'd ever seen. And your teacher was Tom Knowles, Tom correct? Knowles, who yeah. we've had on the show too. And right. he is a very happy, <laughs> happy man. Yeah. And this was pre-beard, pre, you know, all the like mild and beads like, and all that. <laughs> yeah. He was just like a regular looking guy, but he had a sense of radiance and, and inner calmness and peace that I had just never really seen in anyone before. Now, did you feel like, because a lot of people at 28 or that around that time are really torn up. Like it's a hard time for a lot of people. Yeah. Were you feeling that or no? I mean, like where were you as far as just emotionally at that point? I, you know, I've, I, again, I've always kind of felt content with where I was until I wasn't. And then I would make a change. Uh, I, I would rarely hold on to something that I felt like was not serving me any longer. And I didn't even have the language for it. I just kind of... It was instinct. I just kind of felt like that was the only thing to do. That was really the only option. And um, so, yeah, is this this was kind of one of those things because then I realized, well, yoga has been great. I was teaching yoga at the time. I said, yoga is great, but this thing is, this is really where it's at. You know, this is really the essence of why we're even doing yoga. So, and and... And Tom is just so cool. Yeah. I want to be like that. I want to have that kind of effect on people that he's having on me. And I didn't know how that happens. Do you go to, is there a training? I don't know what, it, what, what the mechanism for becoming a meditation teacher was. Because again, there were no trainings. There were no apps, right. nothing. I just started shadowing him around whenever he was teaching new people. I would be sitting there helping him set up, break down the rooms, that kind of thing. Wasn't getting paid anything. I just wanted to be around it. And um, and the more I was around it, the more excited I was about it, about hopefully one day teaching it. And then finally, about four years after that, he invited me and some of his other protégés over to India to train us to become teachers. And and the Vedic teaching, it's it's not easy. I mean, it's a lot. Yeah, it's like thousand hours yeah, yeah, of yeah. meditation, and you're away from your life for three or four months. This is on top of all the, the a couple of years of prerequisite study of advanced knowledge and all of these kinds of kinds of things. So it's a very comprehensive. For you, all of that, clearly, obviously, you were meditating a lot, and you were in the space. But when you go to India now, like you said, you're doing you're all day, every day, you're mm -hmm. in it. What shifted for you personally? Like besides just learning to be a teacher, what was your personal journey on that part? What yeah. shit did you uncover or go through? I think that, um, you know, it's, 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 yeah, a lot of people go to these things and they have these very dramatic, you know, changes and all of that. And again, because I had already kind of been shifty right, <laughs> uh, throughout my whole adult life at that point, now we're, 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 I was 34 or something like that, 34 or 33. So it just kind of felt like the next, you know, the next course in the graduate training and challenging, of course. But, you know, the thing that I think causes the biggest shifts is people have unrealistic expectations. If your expectations are in alignment with what's happening, then you kind of psycho psychologically adjust yourself to the experience and it can kind of mitigate any of those dramatic shifts that are occurring. At that point, I'd been meditating for five years every day. So, you know. Um, what do you think as far as just Joe Schmo coming to meditation, talking yeah. about expectations? Yeah. What do you think the biggest expectations are and why those get in the way? Uh, the biggest expectation is that my mind is the, is the, um, 
is not going to let me meditate or enemy. you shouldn't have to pay for meditation or um, you have to look like a clown when you meditate. <laughs> for time. Or I don't have the time to meditate. Yeah, all of these, which are really more misconceptions. Um, but And then there's the, there's an expectation that it's supposed to work overnight. I, I talk about that all the time. People yeah. come in here to the den and they it's like a miracle. I've accumulated stress over 30, 40, 50 years and it's just all supposed to evaporate away yeah. in two or it's sessions. It's like, I'm going to walk in here and I'm not going to be upset about this or that's not going to bother me. I'm yeah. like, no, you have to actually put in the work. It's yeah. part of it. It's yeah. giving you the tools to do it. Let's talk about you hinted at kind of my mind is going to get in the way. Mm. What do you How do you really talk to people about the mind not being the enemy? I just talk about the mind. I, I, I use a lot of metaphors in my teaching, <laughs> as you probably that. do. Yeah. And uh, one of the one of the my fund uh, go to metaphors is is metaphors for the mind is to look at it as a speaker. You know, it's not if you're if you have your radio tuned into a certain station and you don't like the content of the station, it's not the fault of the speaker. The means by which you are hearing the content, right? It's the it's the whatever channel, whatever frequency you're dialed into. And so the mind has different frequencies that we can tune into. And meditation is a frequency and and the surface awareness is a frequency and sleep is a frequency. And and so when we learn how to have reliable experiences in in influencing the shift in the frequency, then we don't ever have to worry about, you know, um what the content is is uh in, in any any point, and that's what I teach people how to do is how to. So to say to you to you know you're med you're learning how to meditate is to say that you're learning how to settle your mind away from that very noisy surface level frequency to the more quiet, more subtle um, internal vibratory frequency. I love looking at it as different frequencies because again, it's like yes, we all have these thoughts and they're all there and just. You probably have them too, even though yeah. you're this like calm guy who yeah. got to go to Paris and everything yeah, yeah, worked yeah. out. I'm guessing you have them too. And it's just, you've learned how to tune into different frequencies. Yeah. And then ultimately your mind can start stabilizing the content of those more subtle frequencies, which allows you to have a more subtle experience within gross awareness. And that's what, you know, um, leads to more creativity and more happiness and all of that experience inside. That's why, you know, Buddha and all these guys are saying happiness is within. It's because when you do that work and you tap into that, it, it, it starts to migrate from these kind of quiet levels of awareness into the surface level of awareness and, awareness, and then you start experiencing it, experiencing it with your eyes open. And, you know, when people complain about having a busy mind, they're not really talking about the number of thoughts they're having because everybody's mind technically is busy in that sense. What they're complaining about is the quality of the thoughts, right? Because mm. nobody's complaining about having too many happy thoughts. Right. Or too many creative right, thoughts. That doesn't, I had too many happy thoughts right. today. It was awful. <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> What's wrong with me? <laughs> we joke when people come in, they're like, what am I signing this waiver for? Like, just in case you get too happy, yeah. you don't want to be liable. <laughs> so it is, that's funny. You're right. Nobody complains about that stuff. Yeah. And and at the same time, nobody's walking around awake with a blank mind. Like that's not even no. a, that's not a realistic thing. Either. I mean, what is I always say eighty thousand thoughts. Like what, yeah. what is it? It's that's somewhere. about that. I mean, it, it, where however you slice it, it's 
tens of thousands of thoughts, right? It's a lot of thoughts that every single person has. No thought. one escapes that. Yeah. And so what do you think? I always find it funny, and I'm guilty of this, of the stressed out people who can't find the time, say all these excuses you're uh-huh. saying, and probably need meditation the most, but will probably be the last people to get to it. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we overcome that? How do you get those people to understand that? And I, this actually is a good point to talk about your book too. Like, yeah. how do you get those people to understand it's not that complicated? It's not that hard. It doesn't take up that much time. The benefits will far outweigh anything else. And it should be part of your life. And it's not that difficult to incorporate it. I think that, um, you know, as a culture, we there are different waves of interest. And there's the early adopter wave, right? Where the people who are most enthusiastic or most optimistic about those kinds of experiences will start to do the be the first ones. And then that'll start to inspire and influence the next wave. And so those kinds of people that you're describing, I think, are kind of in that last wave. Mm-hmm. And it's coming, you know. I think the more prevalent this practice becomes. I, I, as a teacher, I always recommend that, you know, when, when I teach my students, say, the last thing you want to do if you want to get your friends and family meditating is go home and tell everybody that you need to start meditating. Right. right. Oh, no, it's the worst. The best advertisement for meditation is for you to meditate. And let, let people see. see how you start to change because they know you. I, I, I say you're, you're going to be a more effective advertisement for meditation than I am, right? People look at me and they assume that I'm a salesman for meditation. They hear, <laughs> they hear the name, they hear the title, they see the book. Of course, this guy's going to try to sell me on meditation, right? I don't want to be sold. But they look at you and they say, wow, this guy's just like me. You know, they, he works from nine to five. He has a family. He's got these responsibilities just like me. And he's taking time out to do this silly meditation thing. And he's not being as reactive as all of our other friends. Wow, there must be something to that. Because I know that he wouldn't sacrifice, you know, sitting around drinking rosé to do something that was a waste of his time. So I think we take the marathon approach with our friends and family smart and we just we double up on our commitment to our practice lead by example yeah with the understanding that if we just stay committed if we we if people see us sacrificing the mediocrity in order to access the excellence then eventually um, they're going to get curious. And then before we know it, they're going to be sitting in the, the orientation for the meditation. Right, training, exactly. And then or downloading the Headspace app. So you can't really, you know, you shouldn't talk crap about different techniques or different, you know, approaches. Everything is, it is, can be an on-ramp to the next thing, right? So maybe somebody's doing Headspace and maybe you don't think Headspace is all that great because you teach these comprehensive meditation courses and all of that. Well, I don't think you're really doing big service to the world by, you know, bad mouthing some other technique or some other teacher um, because that person is, is, is reaching people that probably aren't going to come to you. I totally agree. We say that. I mean, it's, it's what I love about the concepts of your book too, which is it's the same point of what the den was about. It's like everyone re- responds to something differently and everyone's path is going to be different. And so however they get there, like right. in a perfect world, we just want everyone to get there. Yeah. Like everyone to feel good about themselves and understand who they took are. took me 30 years to find, you know, 
a, le- a level of instruction that I felt like I resonated with. Right. So, and that worked for you. So what is, people, you, what is your Achilles heel? Like, what do you still struggle with for you? Like, what is, <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, we've talked about all your good fortune, but yeah. you're still human. So yeah. what are your... What are my vices? Yeah, what are your that? vices? What Like, <laughs> tell me about your shit. <laughs> Uh, He's like well, interview over. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm uh, I'm I'm 45 and I'm still single, so well, obviously find- I like relationships as much as anyone else. Um, so that's been something that hasn't necessarily come as easily to me as as other things. Do you find it's is that the stuck in the way comment from earlier, or do you think it's just harder to find someone because of your meditation practice and where you are in the world? Is it not finding someone who's at your level? Is it I think it's all of those things. I don't think it's any just one thing. And and uh, you know, and also I think we can't discount um, you know, things like karma and yeah, you know, like I said, there's no there's no throwaway moments. So my work for myself is not to long for something that I don't already have. And obviously there's a part of that that's probably playing out in the back of my mind, right? But you have to continue doing your work. You have to walk your talk. And for me, it could be that. And for someone else, it could be, you know, not working in their passion or someone else could be not having a kid or, you know, whatever it is for us. And it's not that that's like this big hardship. So, you know, anybody feeling sorry for me, I'm being very picky right now. Oh, I'm sure. No, no, no. (laughs) But I mean, I mean, it's also a very relatable issue. I mean. But I've also very, very consciously made an effort to find comfort within discomfort. Right. And I went through a phase in my life, mostly in my 30s, where I, I experimented with giving up a lot of things, giving up, starting with giving up the meat. And then that went into giving up sugar. And then that went into giving up caffeine and alcohol and cooked foods. And wow, you really went for it. It went all the way to lip balm. I got to oh, the point where you weren't doing lip balm. I was like, I would you die. know what? I'm addicted to lip <laughs> Exactly. Oh. I, I was carrying around five sticks of lip balm. What was you know, your one choice? One in each pocket. I just go for old-fashioned chapstick. <laughs> I don't know what your choice is. I've gone through, I've, I cycled through a lot of them. I'm but, like the black chapstick. That's right. all I want. I don't but, want the cherry. I just want black chapstick. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I found that if I didn't have it, after five minutes, I couldn't focus. I couldn't be present. Nothing. So I'm like I was licking like, my lips right now, by the way, people. I, was like, <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't live like this. This is too much. And so, the, and did you, was one on top of the other, like you kept eliminating something or would something come back in your life and then you'd eliminate something else? No, I would, I would, I would, uh, I would just eliminate it all. But that was, I was very extreme back then. But now I've gotten to a point where I've reintroduced things. So do back we have lip balm life. these days or no lip No, balm? I don't do lip balm okay. because lip balm, <laughs> I just found that it dried out my lips and, uh, and I like, now my lips naturally moisturize themselves. Oh, there you go, ladies. There's an, there's an advertisement. <laughs> so, yeah. But, uh, I, I started eating meat again and, you know, I, I drink, alcohol on rare occasion. Um, but let's talk about this because I actually love that too because I find uh, a big thing, again, what the den is about, what I'm a lot about is you have to be your own guide and you mm-hmm. have to be your own, you have to listen to yourself, which means I think a lot of people enter this world or dabble in the world of wellness and they go extreme a little bit what you're saying and they start being like, oh my God, I have to, I can't eat whatever's going on. I can't eat meat. I have to be a vegan. I have, and by the way, all those things could be exactly what you need. I'm not dispelling them at all. But I don't think it's for everybody. And I don't think everybody needs the same things. Mm-hmm. And my big thing is you got to start listening to yourself to figure out what works for you. If you, if drinking is what works for you, and I don't mean obviously being an alcoholic, but like if you want to dabble and have those rosés or 
if meat is what works for you or being a vegetarian is what works for you or being, you know, gluten-free, whatever it is you need to do, make sure it's what's right for you versus just falling in what you think you're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And there's, I think, a little bit of that trap in wellness and meditation. Like people feel like I can't eat meat. I have to be a vegan. I can't drink all these things. So I kind of love, it's actually refreshing to hear where you're like, oh yeah, now I eat meat again because you discovered almost through the elimination, I'm assuming that it's what was right for you. Well, I just thought, you know, um, what's worse than being rigid is, or what's worse than eliminating things is being rigid. And because that rigidity and the emotions that are um, created out of the rigidity, I think are more harmful to your body than whatever it is you're trying not to, to consume, right? And we, we know this now a lot more, the toxicity of stress chemistry in the body and how it can make us sick and tired and all of that. And so if you're stressed, even if you're eating the highest quality foods, your cells cannot metabolize those nutrients and minerals because they form a protective, um, a protective layer around them. So that that's a that's one of the parts of the sequence of the fight or flight reaction. Right? It's basically protecting you, saying that it's using too much energy to to digest this food properly, and that energy could be better utilized in getting you. Uh, stronger so you can run away faster or fight harder to the life-threatening danger. So once I um, I kind of evolved into that understanding, I, I became a lot more relaxed about things and just started to focus on being happier when I was eating or doing anything, you know, yeah. just doing something with joy versus doing something because I thought that this is what I should supposed to, what I'm supposed to be doing. That's such an interesting way of framing it. It's like Instead of feeling like this is yes, this is no, this is good, this is bad, start reacting with joy and being appreciative of the moments yeah. and then see what comes out of it. And again, as you get older, you start to see there really isn't a whole lot of black and white happening. It's Nothing. all gray. It's all gray areas. I say that all the time. I'm like, life is not black and white. Like I know if my daughter has to quote me later on in life, she's going to be like, it's not black and white. Because that's <laughs> like, I say it all the time. It's yeah. not. People aren't black and white. Situations aren't black and white. Yeah. We can all probably look back at shit we've done that we're not proud of. And probably because the situation wasn't black and white, like right. you, it's not black and white. Yeah. It's yeah. just not. Let's do your four yous because okay. I'm loving talking to you. I feel like I could talk to you for I too know. long. It's such a great conversation. So you're great. And it's, it's such a nice perspective too. It's such an interesting perspective. And I think it's great for people to be able to see like, I don't know, the conversation about happiness and also some people are wired a little bit like that. And other people are training themselves to be wired there, but everyone... Mm -hmm can get there. Yeah, it's absolutely. for everybody. It's like and everyone can, anyone can do a pull up. Right. If that's what I love. To put the training Everyone can in, turn the, the radio dial. Everyone like, can do a pull up. I think it's amazing. So your four use inspirational teacher. Uh, inspirational teacher right now, I would say, you know, there's this, I've been listening to this philosophize podcast on Spotify. Have you heard about Ooh, this? Oh, no. this guy named Stephen West. He does yeah. these little 30 minute long podcasts on all these different aspects of philosophy and philosophers. Oh, I would love that. And it's just fascinating. I'm obsessed with it. I and, would love uh, that. And so inspired by it because he's such a great communicator. So I highly recommend checking that out. I feel like I'd be going back to college because I said a lot of philosophy and I loved it. Yeah. Um, current obsession. Uh, well, the philosophize podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> Find something else. <laughs> um, current obsession would be traveling. I'm just really into just being in a different place on a fairly regular basis and 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 really just kind of 
pushing the boundaries of our beliefs and assumptions around what a successful life looks like, you know, and, uh, and what does that mean for you? Like, where do you feel like, what did a successful life look like for you before? And what are you questioning now? Well, I think, you know, again, growing up, you become indoctrinated to think that success is equal equated to making a lot of money and being in a happy relationship and, you know, having kids and providing and that kind of thing. And now I'm kind of seeing success more as being able to tune into what's happening inside and follow that relentlessly. Follow that without feeling like you're you're um, you're being unfaithful to some doctrine. Some doctrine, exactly. Like, has it ever let you down? No, that's the thing. It has never ever let me down. And even in the moments where I felt like it let me down, it was just a mistaken <laughs> judgment in that moment. Yeah, because then you keep the camera rolling and you see, oh wow, it didn't let me. This down was at delaying all. me, and mostly. When I thought it let me down was when I liked someone and they didn't like me back in the same way. Oh, that's interesting. And then like a year later, you run into the person and you find out, oh, you were depressed. You were suicidal. You were going through all this crazy stuff. You had this really bad relationship that hadn't really ended properly. Thank God we were just we didn't on, get together. We were just talking about this. So speaking with someone, maybe it was Gall. I can't remember the other day on the podcast. If And it's impossible to do, but if we could all literally remember that it's never about you in right. every single it's moment life would be so much easier but we were also talking about how almost impossible that is because yeah. we're human yeah. but it's not personal like everything every breakup every moment every greeting mm-hmm. every sarcastic remark it's it's not about you even if it's directed to you it's never about you right i agree when can we actually start living that way <laughs> well again you know it's not i don't i, I think you're not no one's going to get there 100% of the time but i think if we can get there 60% of the time then that 40% won't be as bad that's so true <laughs> um helpful tip for a valuable meditation uh be l- relaxed sit like you're watching television if you just do that then i think you'll position your and you mind, mean physically physically yeah you'll position your mind to have a more settled experience even without any sort of technique. So just sit, relax, and don't put any pressure on yourself. Yeah. Don't put don't have expectations that this needs to look like this or that or my mind needs to be this or that way. Just just make friends with your mind and love your mind and and you'd be surprised what what the experience is gonna be like once you have that kind of relationship. I love that. That's so sweet. Cause I say sometimes meditation is becoming friends with yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's a more beautiful way of saying it too. It's like fall in love with your mind and mm-hmm. be friends with your mind. Okay. If you have one piece of life advice. Yes. Um, you get what you inspect, not what you expect. Ah, and that brings us full circle because we <laughs> talked about ask questioning and asking and right. like not just consuming to consume. Yeah. Anything. My, my dad used to say that a lot. He did. So I get it now. Like your parents really were very, I look, I think my parents were it all the time too. Like very, instrumental in giving you like tools to be able yeah. to navigate this yeah. way. Well, my dad was an entrepreneur. He is an entrepreneur. And uh, so, and I've been an entrepreneur since I quit that job after three months. And, and that's so true. You know, you, when you, I take, where were you? Where, oh, I was at this agency called Burrell Communications, um, which is a small boutique agency in, in on, on uh, Michigan Avenue. But yeah, you know, you, as an entrepreneur, what, whatever modeling or whatever you're doing, you know, you get what you inspect. You, you, it comes back to 
you taking responsibility for, you know, the way you communicate, the way you nurture a relationship, the way you investigate or vet um, an opportunity and, and whatever happens after that, you know, it's easier to take responsibility because you, because you know, you put the time in to, to uh, do your due diligence. And I find that the biggest disappointments always come from me expecting people to do something that they were never really capable of doing. That's amazing. Your dad's like, you had really good examples. Mm -hmm. Are you, are you, are any of your brothers in the meditation world at all? No, none of my, no one in my family meditates. Not one, not no, at all. No. Do you ever like, if you, well, no, because we just talked about read, this. They haven't even read my book. What? No Neither of them? No one in my family. Do they each have copies? Have you signed They copies all have copies. Them? I went to my, I went to my brother's place recently. He's got a big family and I was looking around the living room, sitting down, we were all talking. I saw my book was, had become a lamp stand. Oh my God. They had, amazing. They had the lamp on top <laughs> of the stack of books that they bought. So they keep you humble. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. That's yeah, good. Yeah. You're, you're still, I mean, I don't, so quick, cause I don't want to go too long about it, but I'm assuming light's not your original name. No, no, no. So do they call you light or do yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Everyone calls me light. Even it's your been, family. It's been light for 14 years now. Yeah. They were, again, they were one of the early adopters to that whole thing. Oh, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Was that hard for you to change your name or you just felt it? No, it was another thing, you know. I didn't I didn't wake up and think I should change my name to Light, you know. It, it was actually born out of a conversation. I mean, it's a little story behind it. Do we have time? Yeah, sure. Go. It? Yeah. It was born out of a conversation I was having when I first moved to LA, you know, and you probably experienced this too. You meet a lot of people, especially in the yoga community, who change their names. Oh, God. I mean, especially here. We joke that our payroll is a nightmare because we never know who someone is. Right. Because right. we're like, wait, that who's this person? Like, what's their official name? So I met, yeah, I met all these guys who had changed their names. And then I was telling my friend, Will, we were at the farmer's market in Hollywood. And I was having lunch one day. And I was telling him about all these people. I was a guy named Mother and a guy named Truth and a guy named... Um, you know, Govindas, the yoga teacher, mm -hmm. back when he changed his name. And then there was this guy that worked at, remember Leaf Cuisine? That, yeah. Yeah, that raw food. That's back in the heyday of my vegan uh, So you life. probably lived there because there were there a lot of choices, day. right? <laughs> and there was this guy who used to work there. His name was Pineapple Head. Interesting and, choice. Yeah, exactly. So I just met, did he prefer to go by the full name Pineapple Head, or could you shorten it to know. Pineapple? I don't know. I don't <laughs> know. I I just I literally had introduced myself to him after seeing him there a hundred times, and he said, "My name is Pineapple Head," and I thought, "Wow, that's very unique." I mean, he beat he beat Gwyneth's apple. I guess he was ahead of the curve. Yeah. So then I was telling Will about all these guys, and I said, "You know, if you were going to change your name to something like Pineapple Head, what would you change it to?" <laughs> And he said, ocean. And he said, what would you change your name to? And I said, I don't know. I don't think I would do it. And he said, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I was like, you know what? Honestly, nothing is coming to mind. And he started just counting down, five, four, three, two. And I just blurted out light. And I have no idea where that came from. But for some reason, the thought to change it just stayed with me. And once you came up with the name. Once I came up with the name, and it was coming from that same place that was saying, go to Paris, give up your seat. You know, trust this guy that you met in the agency, quit the job. Like it was all coming from the same. He keeps place. pointing to like the center of his chest, just so yeah. people know. Because I mean, I do feel like a lot of times it is tangible too yeah. that people don't pay attention to. Yeah. And I made a vow to myself to always follow my heart relentlessly back when I was in my uh, New York days. And that's what prompted me to move to LA in the first place. And so I knew I had to take it seriously. And 
um, I went to go talk to Govindas one one morning. I went to his class, and at the end of the class, I said, "Hey, I'm I've got this weird thought about changing my name. I'm thinking about doing it." I said, "What do you? What are the steps? You know, because again, I'm I'm an entrepreneur. I'm very systematic. Yeah. I'm like, well, how much does it cost? What do you have to <laughs> Where do? do I go? How long does it take? Exactly." And and he said, "All you do is just just start introducing yourself." And, you don't have to go file any papers or anything. Over time, people will just start calling you the new it's name. It's so true, the trickle effect. You introduce yourself yeah. to one person, and that person only knows you by that. Exactly. Did you, for a while, while a few people knew you as one way and others still knew you as another, did it feel like you were two different people? No, because here's what happened. I decided I was going to use um, my yoga class as the opportunity to make the announcement so I could tell 50 people at one time. And, um, and, and it happened that my birthday was coming up about two weeks from that conversation I had with Gopindas, right? Again, this is just some random, I decided to go to his class randomly one morning and I randomly decided to have that conversation with him. And so my birthday was coming up and I decided, okay, that's a great opportunity to change the name, to, to announce the name change. So I'm teaching this class. It's a very crowded class. And, um, Ironically, it's at the same time slot that I first took Will's class, Wednesday oh. morning at uh, 10. 10 o'clock. And because he had retired from that class and he gave it over to me. So I'm making this big announcement. And um, at the end of the class, I said, from now on, I'm going to start calling myself light. And everybody in the class was just kind of staring at me, right? Like I was saying, I was going to go downstairs and get some Starbucks. <laughs> They're like, yeah, why yeah. are you wasting our time? Right. Because <laughs> again, this is middle of LA. So of course they hear this kind of thing all the time. So everybody starts filing out. And there's one woman in the class who had been in my class maybe three times. She's a woman that I met. We were just platonic friends. I met her at a restaurant. Um, I was happened to be sitting with a friend of mine one night having a meal. And she was sitting with her little five-year-old son. Uh, at a table really close to us and we started talking and she found out I was a yoga teacher. And this is back then it was being a yoga teacher was actually kind of rare. unique and rare. <laughs> so she said, I want to come to your yoga class. So I don't know how she got into crunch gym, but she wasn't a member and somehow <laughs> she would sneak in there. And this was like the third time she had done that. So anyway, she comes up to me and she looks like she's seen a ghost. And I'm like, what's going on? She goes, Oh my God. Earlier this morning, her son came into her bedroom, she told me, and she could tell he'd had some dream. And she, he, he said to her, Mommy, Mommy, I'm, I'm going to change my name. And she said, that's interesting. What are you going to change your name to, honey? He said, Light. I want to change my name to Light. Oh, my God, I got the chills. <laughs> I got the chills. And it was she that told me day? That story. It was that moment. So did he change his name to Light? She calls him, she calls him Tristan Light now. But, I mean, how bizarre. That's crazy. For all these things to come together. To stay in touch with that kid. For her to be there that day, for me to make the decision to make the announcement now two weeks before that day, after a random conversation with, I mean, is anything random? That's so, you know, that's, nothing's random. Exactly. I don't think anything's random. Yeah. So I've had so many experiences like that, right? And do you find that the more you take joy in those experiences, the more they happen? I think the more you trust your heart, the more they happen, right? Whether you believe it or not, if it's, if it's something you're feeling inside and, and, you know, to go back to what you were saying earlier around listening to your, your body or your wisdom, I think before that step, what needs to happen is people need to really 
be intentional around clarifying those messages, right? And that's why the daily meditation and all that inner work really comes in handy because there's another part of the body that people listen to that tells you go and get, you know, a half a dozen Krispy Kreme donuts (laughs) on the way home. And of course, yes, you were listening to your body, but what you were really listening to was the stress in the body, right? And the stress makes us crave carbohydrate-rich foods and sugary foods, and the stress makes us you know, double down on staying in a job or in a relationship that we is not serving us because it's we're afraid of what's going to happen out in the unknown. And so if that's the dominant influence, it's going to be a lot more challenging to listen to your heart. And and you hear somebody like me say, listen to your heart, and it sounds like some kind of airy-fairy, you know, advice that can be easily dismissed because that's not your reality. But I think once you start to get the practice down, then the heart messages start to become the dominant experience and it becomes a lot easier. And at the end of the day, you know, we're, we don't like working too hard no. to do anything, <laughs> you know? So you kind of want these things to feel a little bit more naturally so that you can have an easier time following this kind of wisdom. You said right before, and I love it, and I feel like it's a great place then. You're like, I made a promise to myself to follow my heart relentlessly. And I think it's great. And you do, you make it look easy. But I think what's so amazing about everything we talked about today are all the ways that everyone can get to a place to make it easy. Yeah, absolutely. If I can do it, anybody can do it. Absolutely. So thank you for being here. And everyone, don't forget, he's going to do a five-minute simple breathing practice. But thank you. And subscribe if you haven't subscribed. Go to our closed Facebook group if you want to discuss all this stuff afterwards. We're going to have some good discussions about light. And light, you're really, you are light. I'm sure you hear that all the time, but you you really are. And thank Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. All right. So go ahead and uh, if you're not already sitting in a comfortable position, make your way into a comfortable seated position, somewhere where you can ideally have some back support where you can have your arms and legs at ease, where you can relax without feeling like you're going to be physically distracted or disturbed. And once you find your position, go ahead and close your eyes. And what we're going to do is just a very, very simple body relaxing and breathing exercise. So starting with the body, I want you to take your awareness down into your feet and I want you to start relaxing your toes and your feet and working your way up your legs, relaxing your calf muscles, relaxing your thighs, relaxing your hips, relaxing your stomach and your chest, and even relaxing your shoulders. So you don't need to have your shoulders back for this one. You definitely don't need to have your back completely straight for this one either. You just want your upper body to feel very, very relaxed as though you are about to watch television. And then go ahead and take your awareness down your arms and start relaxing your biceps and your triceps. Relaxing your forearms. Relaxing your hands. If you want to interlock your fingers, if you want to cross your arms, that's also allowed, right? Whatever is feeling the most relaxed for you, just take that arm position. 
and then going back up into the shoulders and relaxing your neck and then relaxing your jaw and then relaxing your brow. And at this point, you want your body to feel as neutral as possible. And it's almost as though you're feeling yourself being breathed as the inhale, as the oxygen comes in, as you breathe out, it's almost like it's an automated process. You're not forcing it, you're not controlling it, you're just noticing it. And so it may be shallow, it may be naturally a little bit deeper, but either way, you're not trying to manipulate your own breathing. And all we're going to do for these next couple of minutes is just keep our awareness trained on noticing the breathing. And at certain points during this exercise, you may find yourself at the same time thinking about other thoughts that are not necessarily related to meditation or your breath. They could be related to your day or your plans for the future, or conversations, or songs you heard recently. They could even be thoughts from your past, from childhood, from when you were a teenager. In any case, whenever you find yourself getting lost in a thought, and you remember, oh, I'm sitting here on my couch, or I'm sitting here in my office meditating, then you just very, very casually Return to noticing your breath. And that's really the, the process. A very, very simple process. We're not going to do anything more than that. It's just this cyclical noticing of the breath and then the mind getting lost in other thoughts and then you becoming aware that you're in meditation, and then you begin to notice the breathing again. And we're not looking for anything special to happen other than what's happening right here and right now. So this is more of a celebration of the present moment and whatever internal experience you may be having than it is an expectation of something else occurring other than what you're currently experiencing. And now, from here, you can either continue on noticing your breathing. We've been sitting for five minutes now. Or you can gradually bring yourself out. So opening your eyes very, very slowly and coming back out. But if you would like to stay in it a little bit longer, then by all means, keep your eyes closed, stay relaxed, and continue on, and then bring yourself out when you're ready. Thank you very much. Ten Talks is produced by Mike Burns, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, and music is by Alex Fetter. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.